Hi, it's 216.24. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This week I'm out traveling, lecturing. We're going to do a little different podcast. We're going to do cases. Uh, this is Ask Cush Anything cases that you sent in on the internet and either by email. You can email me at jackcush at roomnow.com or you go to the website and click on the bottom left blue box that says Ask Cush Anything and record your question or case. Let's begin with a question from Dr. William Hung. Hi, Dr. Cush. This is Dr. William Hung, rheumatologist from Los Angeles, California. I have a 42-year-old female with rheumatoid arthritis and Crohn's disease. She is on methotrexate and Humira. She is in low disease activity state for both conditions. Recently, she was hospitalized with fever, cough, and shortness of breath. Chest X-ray showed bilateral upper lobe patchy alveolar infiltrates and CT chest showed bilateral scattered consolidation with small cavitation. She was also noted to have positive quantity from gold TB test. It was previously negative about a year ago. Bronchoscopic lavage was positive for MRSA, but negative for AFB. Durham AFB was also negative. She's currently being treated with four anti-TB medications for presumed pulmonary tuberculosis. Methotrexate and Humira are on hold. What is your recommendation? I also have one more quick question about 74-year-old male with rheumatoid arthritis, well-controlled on methotrexate 12.5 milligram weekly. He was noted to have positive quantity from gold TB test. No symptoms suggestive of TB. Chest is pending. What is your recommendation? Thank you, William. William got a twofer on this one, didn't he? So the first case... The woman, she's actually from California, doesn't travel. She's an RN. She's got active TB, right? The second case, the older man, he's from Turkey. Uh, he has a positive quantum fear on no symptoms. He has latent tuberculosis. Let's sort of review um, these cases and what his questions were regarding how they should be treated. I think that the patient has active TB as proven by a positive quantum fear on test, even though it didn't grow out in culture. Uh, and although I want to reiterate or uh, underscore the fact that quantifiron is not a good test for active infection, it's more of a, uh, of an, uh, an effective test for past exposure and infection and latent TB. But being positive, the chest x-rays being wildly abnormal, uh, and the other findings suggesting that this patient has active TB. Uh, again, it, she probably contracted this as a nurse, um, and I agree with the choice to treat her as active TB uh, and put her on four drug therapy. I might have temporarily suspended her methotrexate and adalimumab, but I wouldn't keep her off of it. Once she's put on therapy, she's protected. So she, she needs to be back on uh, her RA therapy because if her RA doesn't stay under control, and it's been under control, then she's going to get inflammation. Inflammation is going to drive worse outcomes and complications with her TB and mycobacterial infection. So put her back on methotrexate and the TNF inhibitor. Now, again, you might be um, afraid to put her on a TNF inhibitor. I am not. Uh, and, I, and I have worked with a lot of the TB experts in the United States, uh, and they would also recommend the same thing. Nonetheless, you do have other treatment options. Of all the biologics, the one that causes reactivation of TB is the one 
that basically breaks down granuloma. What do you need to make granuloma? TNF, 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 and a little gaminopheron. So you can safely use tocilizumab, abatacep, rituximab, even JAK inhibitors in this scenario, much, much safer than a TNF inhibitor. But the TNF inhibitor is working in her. And she's protected, and she's not going to break down more granuloma or get, you know, a disseminated spread of her mycobacterial infection by putting her back on methotrexate and on the TNF inhibitor. So you do have options, but most importantly, she needs to be treated. Second case was the older gentleman who has RA on methotrexate. Um, he doesn't have an, uh, an, a chest X-ray abnormality. He doesn't have symptoms. Um, he just has a positive test. Um, that's the definition of latent tuberculosis, LTBI, meaning positive test, no symptoms, negative chest X-ray. Uh, should he be treated? And the question here is, I believe yes, because his age makes him a risk factor for future reactivation. And now he could be, because he's from Turkey, he could be someone who has lifelong um, positive PPD and maybe lifelong positive quantiferons for all we know. But I'm assuming by the way this case was presented that he must have been tested for quantiferon prior to receiving the TNF inhibitor and now he's positive. So yes, he should be treated. Uh, he should get one drug. You can give him six months of INH grade B evidence, nine months of INH grade A evidence, four months of rifampin grade A or grade B evidence. Uh, and that works well. There are newer regimens, shorter regimens as well that work fine. Once the patient is put on therapy, the patient can go back on methotrexate or back on a biologic without any further risk. I want to underscore that. And again, the best example is a case I had when I was doing clinical trials with infliximab. A Korean woman comes in, she gets screened to get an infliximab trial. We do a skin test. It comes, she comes back five days later. It's big time positive. Uh, she's got no other problems, no symptoms. She's basically has latent TB. Um, does she enter the clinical trial? Yes. I get a 300 milligram tablet of INH. I put it in her mouth, tell her to swallow it. I put the IV in her arm and start her on infliximab. That is perfectly fine because once she's on therapy, she's protected. You don't disseminate. You don't reactivate. You don't want to, again, it's never been described. So again, this patient should go back on therapy. I think it would be the smart thing to do. Let's go to another um, a recording and online case. This is from Dr. Vrishali Dalvi. Good morning, Jack. I'm Vrishali Dalvi. I'm a rheumatologist practicing in Southern Maryland. I had a question about monitoring inflammatory activity in a patient with relapsing polychondritis on Akimbra. This is a 42-year-old female who developed polychondritis 20 years ago, which severely affected her. Um, it involved her sclera, trachea, ears. She eventually needed a tracheostomy, developed severe protrusion of both eyes, eventually became blind and deaf. Um, uh, over time, she's failed many medications such as methotrexate, cytoxan, remicade, imuran, rituximab, and Celsept. Um, her history has also been complicated by various infections such as mandibular osteomyelitis, abdominal wall abscesses, and other episodes of cellulitis. She was on Humira for 10 years until 2023. It was stopped when she developed a right leg ulcer. Um, she was also on the steroids and became diabetic, obese, uh, 
developed chronic kidney disease and now has CKD stage 4. About two years ago, uh, her prednisone dose was increased to 15 or 20 milligrams a day for chest pain, which was presumed to be caused to chondritis. Um, never seen any imaging that supported it, but she stayed on this dose of 15 to 20 milligrams a day. Uh, also, she... So the recording got cut off at that point. I'm going to assume, Vrishali, that your question is, one, how to monitor such patients and assess such patients, and two, maybe how to approach the treatment uh, in this case. Let's just say this case again, and imagine it's rheumatoid arthritis and not relapsing polychondritis, both inflammatory conditions, both can produce substantial tissue damage. This patient is very, very aggressive, relapsing polychondritis. All the complications you want, tracheal, ear, nose, throat, you know, horrible. Um, and then complicated by all kinds of things. And she's got multiple medical problems and she's the worst possible candidate. And you're left to figure out how much of this is inflammatory and worthy of anti-inflammatory or immunologic uh, intervention. And I think that you have to recognize that like an RA with longstanding disease, many, many complications, you're largely dealing with damage and not with inflammation. So monitoring this patient is going to be difficult. You know, you could look for signs of inflammation, anemia, chronic disease, hypoalbuminemia, um, uh, white count changes, but I, they're probably not going to be helpful. Sed rate and CRP are variably helpful in the early phases of relapsing polychondritis, I found CRP to be helpful in some people, but not everyone. I doubt at this point that's going to be helpful. So now what are you going to base your, your, your treatment on and your assessment on? It's not going to be how red her ear is, right? Her symptoms are all pretty much related to damage. So in this case, you're left with imaging. You can do CT, MRI, and FDG PET. And the bottom line is CT will show you the extent of damage. MRI will show you damage and may give you some indication of inflammation being present. But if you're asking the question, how much of this is damage and how much of this is, is actual inflammation that may merit therapy, then FDG PET is the answer. It's expensive. It's hard to get. But that would give you the clearest answer as to whether she needs steroids or whether she needs immunosuppression, of which you can choose from a number of different things, and she's been on many of them. I don't have a particular favorite. You know, I, I like methotrexate and, and leflunamide and, and azathioprine, but biologic-wise, I don't know that any of them has been proven to be effective. I think here the harder question is monitoring and figuring out whether inflammation is in play or not. I hope that's helpful um, our next case um, comes from good friend and colleague, Dr. Ken Stark in Tavares, Florida. Ken says he's got a, a, a female with thir who's 36 um, who developed metastatic breast cancer um, and then went on checkpoint inhibitor therapy uh, and went into remission. Good news. However, we presume as a result of her checkpoint inhibitor therapy, she, she developed seronegative inflammatory arthritis. Initially, she was given very high dose of steroids, 60 milligrams a day, and later hydroxychloroquine. This was later weaned down, but they can't get her below 20 milligrams a day. Um, the patient doesn't want to take methotrexate because she still wants to get pregnant. I'm not sure that's the right answer, meaning 
she can get pregnant. You know, first off, she's 36. Taking methotrexate is not going to change her odds, but you do have to control the disease before the desire to get pregnant. So could you use a TNF inhibitor in this person? I think this boils down to management of the uh, check inhibitor-related inflammatory arthritis. You can pretty much use everything, steroids, TNF inhibitors, DMARDs, just don't use abatacept, right? That's not, not kosher. Uh, and yeah, I think that she can easily go on methotrexate or um, just go right to a TNF inhibitor. There's no reason I would not do that. You want to get her off the steroids. Um, and, and I think that because the outcomes of, uh, of check inhibitor patients who stay on steroids, they have more problems in the long run. There's concerns about its effect on the primary underlying cancer. She's not totally out of the woods with regard to the cancer. Putting her on a biologic, oh my goodness, what's that going to do to her cancer? Will it make her cancer worse? Will I get sued? No. ACR, ULR guidelines say if your patient has a solid tumor, how do you treat them? Treat them as if they don't have a tumor or a cancer. It doesn't make any difference. Your job is to treat the rheumatoid or seronegative rheumatoid arthritis. It's the oncologist's job to follow her breast cancer. And if the oncologist thinks that any of your drugs are going to cause cancer, you need a new oncologist. Okay? So, yes, I would put her on a TNF inhibitor, and, uh, and then you have a lot of other things to choose from after that. So, good luck, Ken. Dr. Nada Scoff, who's in Omaha, Nebraska, asked a question about treating and monitoring sarcoidosis of affecting the, the bone uh, and the maxilla. And it, thank you, Nada, for bringing me, you know, a question about sarcoid, of which I'm not an expert, but I think I may have some useful information. 21-year-old woman who got a dental implant in 2021, and then two years later, she had a problem with the dental implant and had a hole near, near it in the maxilla that led to maxillary bone destruction. She had two biopsies, each of which showed granuloma. I would assume the granuloma was sarcoid based on your diagnosis. She soon after had a chest x-ray showing hyalur adenopathy that when that was biopsied, um, hyalur lymph nodes biopsy also showed granuloma and they presume that she has sarcoidosis. The question is, how can they monitor such, uh, such a patient? How can they uh, treat her? And uh, monitoring uh, a, a sarcoid is usually based on the tissue that's involved more so than the uh, lab tests. Lab tests are probably not all that helpful. It's where the tissue is and the damage is. I mean, if you have lung involvement, ACE levels may be helpful. But angiotensin-converting enzyme levels may not be helpful, certainly in people with arthritis. I don't know if it's going to be helpful in someone with osseous sarcoidosis. So first off, this sarcoid affecting the maxilla and bone, this is pretty rare. This is pretty rare. So I'd like to know that she had the right histopathology on those biopsies that says that this is sarcoid, and then I would proceed as such. The good news for you is I'm not a sarcoid expert. I would respond to this question by saying, find a sarcoid clinic and make the patient go. Either go by telemedicine or go one time and then be managed by telemedicine. You do the local management. I think involving a real sarcoid expert, and there are a number of them. I, I know there's some in Cincinnati that are uh, pulmonologists that are expert at this. But the good news is I'm here at RWCS in Maui and uh, or um Alvin Wells gave a fabulous lecture today on sarcoidosis and management, and I brought to him your case and question. 
he suggested for deep tissue involvement of sarcoidosis uh, that the no-brainer here is the patient should be on infliximab and probably doses of five milligrams per kilogram and above. Uh, whether you should use steroids or not, I, I don't think that you should unless you're dealing with an acute presentation and, uh, and, and, and the patient is sick. Other than that, I think you should avoid the steroids, use the infliximab, and, and he likes as a second DMARD azathioprine, probably in high, milli, in high doses, one to two milligrams per kilogram. And that would be his preferred recommendation. There are others, including mycophenolate um, and other DMARDs that you could use in addition to infliximab. There's really no other good data about other MOA biologics in this case. Uh, and again, this is why I think involving a regional sarcoid expert would do you uh, a, a world of good. So hopefully, Nada, that will help you. I want to end with a discussion of uh, a young woman who presented to me a, a little while back. She's 17 years old and limps into your office because she has one swollen joint. She said that it began acutely one morning when she woke up with this left knee that was swollen. Uh, it was, uh, she didn't know if it was warm or not. Um, she had no other symptoms. She went to the emergency room. She, she limped into there. She was evaluated. She was told that she had water on the knee or an infusion. They drained it. They put, a, according to her, a gigantic needle and a gigantic syringe, and she almost fainted. She doesn't know anything about the results of that other than the result, test results came back with no evidence of infection on the fluid. She was referred by the emergency room doctor who did you know, labs and x-rays. X-rays were negative, only showed an effusion. The lab showed a mild anemia. The synovial fluid culture was negative. Um, and because she had a history of prior abdominal cramping um, that was intermittent, he, said, he gave her a non-steroidal, told her to see the primary care doctor, maybe see a rheumatologist, or a GI specialist. Um, she went to see her primary care doctor who repeated the labs, found that she was negative for rheumatoid factor and ANA and had a, a normal CBC except for the anemia that was 10 over 32. Creatinine LFTs were negative as were uh, antibodies for celiac. So when you further question her, she shows up in your office. She only has one swollen joint. It's a cool effusion. It's still a two-plus effusion, and she's still limping. And she's taking the nonsteroidal intermittently. The nonsteroidals have, by the way, not made her GI problems any worse, but they haven't really helped her knee either. So the question is, what are you going to do? Uh, again, on exam, you find a cool knee effusion, two-plus swollen no evidence of enthesitis or dactylitis or ocular disease or inflammation, no skin rashes. And the question is, what are you going to do? I think the first thing we have to underscore in this case is that any patient who presents with an acute monarthritis and effusion must be tapped. Every patient, no matter what the story is. Uh, and that's to rule out infection. After all, this is a sexually active 17-year-old woman and she's got one swollen joint. This is GC, GC, GC until proven otherwise. It's unlikely that her effusion is going to be mechanical, you know, uh, traumatic and whatnot. She has no history of trauma, no history of twisting, popping, falling, fractures, or anything like that. The x-ray that was done in the emergency room did not disclose anything abnormal other than the effusion. 
So for me, the differential diagnosis here is gonococcus, reactive arthritis, Bichette's uh, pseudogout, and a spondyloarthritis, which could include psoriatic arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, um, enteropathic arthritis, Whipple's disease, uh, and a diagnostic test was done. And the diagnostic test was she was referred to GI. GI evaluated her, and yes, she had Crohn's disease. It was a cult. She hardly had symptoms other than cramping. She denied any diarrhea. And it turns out that this is kind of what happens in young people with IBD. Older people with IBD often have, what, GI symptoms and diarrhea and cramping before they develop their arthritis, whether that be an oligo, monoarthritis, or polyarthritis, right? The kids, um, and this is a kid at 17, they're more likely to present with arthritis first and later on develop the GI manifestations. You need to know that enteropathic arth- arthritis is a most common or one of the most common extra intestinal manifestations uh, of Crohn's disease. Males and females, all ages can be affected. Peripheral arthritis in 20%, axial arthritis in 10%, and the peripheral arthritis parallels the extent of gut involvement. One joint, mild colitis by endoscopy. So again, she ends up being treated for her colitis and her arthritis gets better. End of story. I'm sure you got that case right. Ultimately, I did. Tune in next week for more on the podcast.